Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, 21st Century Espionage. Ottawa announces a ban on TikTok on government phones as calls for a public inquiry into China's election interference grows. And COVID blues, why has transit ridership not recovered after the pandemic? Plus, should federal electoral boundaries take into consideration ethnic communities? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Earlier today, the federal government announced it was banning Chinese-owned social media app TikTok from all government mobile devices beginning tomorrow. Now, the government says the app presents an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security, and the company's data collection methods uh, create vulnerabilities to cyber attacks. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from a few hours ago. We're making the decision that uh, for government employees, for government equipment, it is better uh, to not have them access TikTok uh, because of the concerns uh, that people have in terms of safety. I suspect that uh, as government takes the significant step of uh, telling all federal employees that they can no longer use TikTok on their uh, work phones, uh, many Canadians will reflect on the security of their own data and perhaps make choices in consequence. But I'm always a fan of giving Canadians the information for them to make uh, uh, the right decisions for them. So there you have it, an app used for producing short videos, uh, which I would argue is highly addictive for a lot of folks, is now essentially a national security threat. Joining us now is Jesse Miller, uh, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, as always, thank you for having me. So first and foremost, was this the right decision in your mind? When it comes to national security and the use of government-provided phones for employees and elected officials, 100%, uh, uh, it's been a, a resonating uh, conversation for the past three years on the rise of TikTok. And, um, you know, to be fair, any government-issued phone, we should be looking more and more at how third-party oversight is embedded in these apps. And so whether it be Facebook, Instagram from the United States, or TikTok and Lark from China, there are always the concerns around how uh, issues and information inside our borders can be collected by those third third parties. And so uh, this is the right step. I think, unfortunately, we're going to see some people kind of um, open up a lot of conversations in the negative around it's just TikTok. But we also forget about the pervasive nature of of a lot of these apps and how much data is collected and where the human uh, component for uh, privacy breaches exists. Before we get to um, the the broader implications of TikTok for a moment, do you think that we should actually, as you were saying, that government phones perhaps should also be looking at all social media in regards to the pervasive nature of the information they are collecting behind the scenes? Like we should be banning all of them. Well, yeah, we should be. And certain ideas of the way that Canadians have valued the idea of our information staying within Canada. Now, just to give an example, if you look, you know, 10 years ago, we would see government officials using BlackBerry products. BlackBerry products were designed and built in Canada. We had the the information management hosted in Canada. And if we even go back, you know, 10, 15 years, BlackBerry was the preferred communication tool for business because of the ability to maintain that privacy for the corporation or the government or whatever it be. So if you saw police officers using Blackberries to communicate, it was because that national security information would stay secure in Canada. Once we migrated away from tools like that into iPhones and Samsung devices, we got to that app-based economy where the third party now is the company that collects the data. And you as the user, not so much concerned about being on one network, but in multiple networks for communication, we then started seeing these levels of government oversight becoming the concern of where this information would then travel because you cannot access the app itself. Mm -hmm. So within that, this tool of TikTok becoming the conversation, we kind of go from that Trump administration piece of him trying to hang on to this China is the bad bad entity and national security, we needed a bit of a runway to kind of get away from that rhetoric and really identify whether concerns for safety for everyday Canadian data management were of concern. And when it comes to government communications, government national policy, government oversight, protected documents, you shouldn't have any form of social media in that space where that information could potentially be accessed or seen by a third party and national security concerns being primary there. Having um, you know lived and worked as a reporter in China, I've always have to, even I have to remind myself once in a while that no matter what private entity uh, there is in China, whatever sector you're in, ultimately all companies are beholden to the Communist Party of China, that if they ask they want information, you have to provide that information. Now, in the case of TikTok, uh, what exactly are they collecting that would be of, of, of 
you know, national security concerns? Is it just your location, uh, your IP address, um, payment information? What are the, what's the serious nature of what we're talking about here in regards to what potentially uh, could be extracted by TikTok? You see, the hard part there is that it's applicable in all spaces. Like the Patriot Act in the United States allows the United States government to access any company's data and, and investigate something that's identifying an individual. So as a Canadian traveling to the United States, I'm still subject to information about me that I've provided to a social media company being used to determine my admittance into the United States, my mental health, all those little things. So with China, it's the same thing with the government oversight, obviously a lot more ease for the government to collect from any company you know, without the warrant to kind of conversation. But it's the idea that on the device itself, there may be information that's available. And so it's how the app is embedded into the device that becomes of concern. And so are there documents on the, on, on the, the, the phone itself that are protected, that are, they're nationally secured documents that shouldn't be available for outside eyes? But TikTok's very interesting in the way that, to your point, you know, the government can get access. We look at things like journalists. I mean, I, in, in China, there have been concerns about how journalists have reported and whether or not there's been whistleblowers from ByteDance itself. So ByteDance actually conducted an investigation into whether or not information was leaking out of their company by looking at others' TikTok accounts and seeing if the proximity of that account had ever been in connection with anybody of their employee. And so this idea of kind of big brother watching, I mean, the reality of it is most of our technology does that. The question is who has oversight? And so if you're thinking about like a high-profile crime in Canada where we're trying to ping our networks to see whether or not a cell phone has been active in a crime scene, that's all plausible uh, technology that people kind of forget about when it comes to thinking about what our tech does. Mm -hmm. But the idea that a company or people internal to the company can now see what's on your phone without that oversight, without that third party kind of, hey, we're looking for a warrant, we're looking for information, can you give this to us within our laws and structure, that right there becomes the idea of who can then push a button, see what's on somebody's phone, and see how they can leverage that information to the, the negative of our national security. Final question to you. Uh, should Canadians do the same when it comes to government phones on their own personal phones and say, wait a minute here, you can ask access vital national security information potentially, but what about my life, my IP address, my payment methods? Um, should we also, as, as private citizens, also think about perhaps removing some of these sites uh, from our personal phones? I've always said that if you're concerned about one geographic national political concern, you should be concerned about another. And so to the point earlier I made with the United States, most of us as Canadians, we travel to the United States. We're not thinking about the idea of being considered not admissible. And so if I were to say, you know, Tiananmen Square happened and, you know, you know, tank men, all that stuff from the 1980s when this idea that Tiananmen Square didn't happen. If I go outside of China and I start telling the world on social media, this happened, this happened and I try and enter China, and I'm highlighted as a provocator of, of the communist uh, government. That may make me inadmissible or indetainable or whatever it be. But we saw Canadians during, let's say, Trump's election in 2016 turned away from the border because of what they said on social media. And they were totally aghast, going, oh, my goodness, how dare you look at what I wrote on Facebook? You are entering a country where you're not a citizen. Your rights don't necessarily apply the same way. So each user, and to echo the prime minister, has to make a choice based on how they feel a third party is looking at their information. And if you sit there and go, hey, it doesn't matter if they look, know what kind of videos I watch or I've posted pictures of my family or they know my IP address, so what? It does come down to what information can be leveraged and how can it negatively impact you. Jesse, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz, as always. Let's talk about uh, ridings, federal ridings. Now, the Constitution requires that ridings be redrawn every 10 years or so uh, in, in, in order to account for population changes. Now, BC's uh, new riding uh, is coming. We've got one extra, more, extra seat uh, when it comes to our federal ridings. It's because we have 600,000 uh, new residents since 2011. So we have 43 seats uh, in Parliament. But also, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect map. It, it is redrawn. Some cities... Uh, are move from one riding to another. Uh, ridings can be split. Sometimes members of parliament will represent uh, two communities, sometimes even three. Uh, well, in South Vancouver, they're dealing with a similar challenge. Now, currently, the historic Punjabi Market, which is uh, located at Main and 49th, and the Raw Street Sikh Temple are in the same riding. It's been a sort of traditional home for Vancouver's uh, sizable South Asian community, one that is continuing to grow. Now, under the new boundaries, the Punjabi Market itself would straddle the corner of two 
ridings, Vancouver Arbutus and Vancouver Kingsway, while the Gortuara would be located in the riding of Vancouver Fraserview, South Burnaby. Uh, there is concern within the community, of course, that uh, these new ridings, the way they are at this point drawn, uh, ignore you know decades of history, it in many ways dilutes the political representation of Vancouver's South Asian community. Well, joining me now to talk about these new federal election boundaries is Gulzar Nanda. He is chair of the Punjabi Market Regeneration Collective. Gulzar, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So first and foremost, what kind of impact do you see happening uh, when it comes to representation for the South Asian community? Is it just a case of you think it's going to be diluted or do you think there's bigger cases of, of representation you're concerned about? I think like, you know, primarily the way that we engage with government, which is through the Gurdwara, you know, our elders, they travel to the Gurdwara every Sunday um, and it's an opportunity for them to have their voices um, uh, heard by representatives, especially during election season. And I feel that, you know, there's an opportunity where, you know, there might be some confusion uh, in, in our community uh, mm-hmm. because of, because, you know, we fall into patterns and for decades, the Punjabi market, the Sunset neighborhood, Fraserview, uh, the South Asian community living there has used the, the Gurdwara as a means to really, you know, engage politically. And I feel that you know, having it split up the the Punjabi market and sunset from the from the Gurdwara, it it, it makes just that capacity to engage it diminishes it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one would one could not could one argue that look uh, when you talk about the South Asian community, you've got significant representation already, and it perhaps may not be specific to South Vancouver, but you have a sizable mm-hmm. South Asian population in communities like Surrey, uh, in Abbotsford, um, increasingly growing in Richmond as well, and of course the traditional uh, community in in Vancouver. That if there is a community that does have representation, it would be the South Asian community because it is so politically engaged. Yeah, I mean, one could argue that, and I do think our community is engaged, but we're looking at it from a context of South Vancouver. And South Vancouver um, is one of the most underserved uh, communities in B.C. when it comes to, you know, uh, investments from the government. So, you know, I, I, we operate out of South Vancouver, the Punjabi Market Collective. Mm-hmm. It's our mission to preserve our history in South Vancouver, and we're attempting to do that. But, you know, when the table or when the cards are stacked against you, it makes it just a little bit more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important that we're able to remain in the exact same writing as Casa de Juan Society because it is such an important part of our history, one, but it's also a very important part of the way that we engage with um, the government. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those who are listening to you go, wait a minute, we sh- why should government, uh, when it's always difficult, as I said, there's no such thing as a perfect political map. It's always a challenge, uh, whether it's based on, you know, you've got residents in Burnaby going, why are we connected to North Vancouver? Or some, I'm sure, in Burnaby go, why are we connected to Vancouver? Uh, South, whatever it may be, everybody's got concerns. I'm hearing about concerns in Surrey as well, and even, even in Langley. Um, what do you say to those, look, it's already difficult to draw a map when it comes to communities. I'm talking about just municipalities. Uh, once you add the layer of ethnicity or faith, uh, that we are complicating things, that we shouldn't be looking at uh, these issues through the lens of culture or faith, but perhaps along community, which is, you know, Vancouver should have its own Vancouver-centric or, you know, a member of parliament or Langley, whatever it may be, I understand that. But we shouldn't be looking at federal election boundaries based on ethnicity, ethnicity or faith. Yeah, I mean, when these boundaries are redrawn, every single Canadian has an opportunity to speak up and share their thoughts mm-hmm. about how they're being redrawn. So when we as a community are, you know, reach out and say, hey, we have issues with the way this boundary is being redrawn, we're just exercising our democratic rights. Everybody has the right to do that. In fact, if one of your listeners has an issue with the way that their riding is being redrawn, I encourage them to reach out to us at info at punjabimarket.ca and we can walk them through the process of raising their concerns with their MP or with Ottawa. Mm -hmm. I think that the country, the values that it's built on are exactly this. We're just exercising those rights of, you know, political determination Mm -hmm. and our ability to, you know, have our voices heard. Mm -hmm. Um, I I agree that sometimes there might be a reason outside of, you know, just ethnicity that these are being, these lines are being redrawn. But I think, just the significant history of South Vancouver, it's one of the first places in Canada where South Asians really felt welcomed. And there was 
visibility for our community. I think that that is something that all Canadians from here to all the way to the east side of the country should cherish and should not try to sort of split up. Mm-hmm. I don't, my, next, my, my next and final question is, is around when you say the, so much of what is discussed and uh, um, you know, may, come in, may, may be raised with your member of parliament comes through the Gurdwara, the temple. Um, I'm curious, the community is so politically engaged. Is, do you see a movement towards perhaps creating capacity in, in the South Asian community that doesn't have to go through a Gurdwara? And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is these are places of faith, and they should only be places of faith. And the broader political uh, discussions, and I know these temples are, uh, because of early days, uh, when these communities first started, have been like community centers. And I'd be the first to say that. But do you think there needs to be more capacity in these communities now, where the broader uh, political questions, concerns, uh, whatever it may be, can be articulated in different institutions without it going, without it coming through a gurdwara, a mandir, uh, a mosque? a church, whatever it may be, that we should be having our political conversations outside of places of faith? I definitely do see a day, you know, where that type of capacity is going to be built. I think we're seeing it unfold right now on social media, to be quite honest. And I think there should be spaces where, you know, if you're uncomfortable going to the Gurdwara for one reason or another, that there is an opportunity for you to speak up. But as it stands right now, Mm -hmm. the Gurdwara is an extremely important place. Look, I'm a Hindu. I don't practice a Sikh uh, um, uh, religion. However, I do, I do see, you know, Cost of the Wan Society and the Gurdwara as a community center, a place where I'm welcome and where I can come voice my concerns and I can engage politically. And I think that that idea, that comfort has been sort of built over decades, actually, by leaders saying that, hey, this is not only God's home, but this is a home for all of our communities to come. And you don't have to be South Asian in order to, you know, um, engage at Cost of the Wine Society. You can be from any background. Think of it as a community center because I think at the heart of it, it is that. Mm-hmm. sir, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, let's focus a little bit on transit this half hour. Now, on Friday, I was reading the Washington Post, and there was an interesting article in regards to public transit agencies across that state asking for a bailout, uh, saying they face a looming fiscal crisis because of lagging ridership and uh, and other issues, potentially uh, including uh, people not using transit as they much as they used to in the past because they are working from home. Uh, across the U.S., there was $69 billion in federal emergency funding to keep buses and trains and subways uh, running uh, in the state already right now the transit tra- transit system there uh, is is uh, dealing with potentially a two billion dollars in cuts uh, because of their twenty two billion dollar deficit and I thought it was a good time to chat with um, the folks here at TransLink and those who help in planning uh, our transit system because what's happening in California and is happening across North America as well. And recently TransLink said that its uh, boardings are at 82% of pre-pandemic levels, so it still needs a bit of help. I want a sense of where we are. Joining me to talk about the issue is Brad West. He's TransLink's, uh, he is the Mayor's Council Chair at TransLink and he's, of course, the Mayor of Port Coquitlam as well. Brad, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. By the way, just quickly put me down as not only yes, but hell yes to a public inquiry on foreign interference. <laughs> no, I, I think there's a, a lot of uh, Canadians, uh, you know, common sense tells you we really should look at the broader issue, not just um, uh, the interference with our our, uh, our, our elections, but uh, how our universities are doing, you know, uh, do, conducting research projects that are funded by China, as you know very well. Uh, uh, you know, look at Australia, country, you know, s- smaller in size when it comes to population, but similar in government, similar in, 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 in mindset. They trade significantly with China, but they've been very strong pushing back on that country. While we have tiptoed around the whole issue, we, we don't need to worry about our Chinese community. They are proud Canadians. We actually need to take all of that stuff, the ethnicity, uh, the, the debates over racism, put it aside. And we actually need to worry about national security and our sovereignty. 
and we have not been mature enough to get there yet. I think America's there, and I think we're slowly getting there, as we, we always do, but we're going to muddle our way to there. And we this is important discourse, so I'm glad you, glad you gave me your thoughts. And I said it better. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> anyway, all, let, let's talk about issues that impact people every single day, and that's yeah. uh, transit and TransLink. And as I said, in the United States, significant challenges there. Uh, how much help does TransLink need right now in regards to getting through, getting through the next few years? Well, right now, the transit agency is dealing with really a triple whammy. It has, as you mentioned, uh, reduced fare revenue coming its way. Although I do want to note that TransLink has seen the fastest and highest uh, recovery in ridership in North America. Mm -hmm. So there are places that are in a lot uh, more challenging spot. And, And in fact, what's interesting about TransLink is that the recovery is dis, is uh, diverse across the region. So while overall the system is at about 82% of pre-pandemic levels, there are parts of Metro Vancouver that are over 100% of where they were pre-pandemic, which, by the way, pre-pandemic was not all that hot in terms of uh, the quality of service in some of these areas. You had buses that were passing people by. So that's not necessarily the the goal you want to get back to. But south of the Fraser, particularly in Surrey, is well above where they were pre-pandemic for ridership. Out where I am in the Tri-Cities and the eastern suburbs and Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, also beyond 100% ridership. Hmm. So it's different. The the transportation patterns obviously are changing. uh, And we do see ridership uh, being very strong in certain parts of the region and weaker in other parts. But ridership revenue is down overall. That's the first whammy. The second whammy, of course, is like every person, every family, every business, uh, they're facing increasing inflationary pressures and, and costs. And the third piece is that you're seeing more and more people switch to EVs. And the result of that is declining gas tax revenue for the transit agency. So those three things combined have created a situation where the transit agency, in order to not make reductions to current service levels, uh, needs about $500 million over the next two years to be able to uh, be whole. But really, I think we need to shift the focus in the conversation to a funding model that is going to produce the transportation options that people in Metro Vancouver need and deserve. Quite frankly, it has not kept pace with the growth growth of our region. Uh, there are many communities, including my own, including many south of the Fraser, Delta, Surrey, Langley, etc., that are poorly served or underserved by uh, transit at this uh, point in time. So, there's a lot of catching up to do. Mm-hmm. The record that we've had in our region of building one SkyTrain extension every decade tied to some major international event like the Olympics or Expo mm-hmm. is not sufficient given the growth that we are seeing and are going to continue to see over the next number of years. Yeah, and, and I uh, I don't blame TransLink for this, but I still find it appalling that Surrey had, was it four, uh, I think, four stops uh when they initially put the the expo line in and they didn't have anything, nothing else was built for I think 20 years. And I think Diane Watts brought that up at one point, which I think is a failure of the political class and you know, the provincial uh, leaders uh, in, in, in Surrey, whether BBC, BC liberal or NDP, they just didn't lobby hard enough, needed to be pushing some of that. But let me talk to you about the broader issue, the existential funding challenge, which you've brought up here, the EVs right now, when people gas up, I think it's 17 cents per liter uh, of that uh, gas tax is actually goes to TransLink to fund. Uh, for TransLink to move forward. Um, does that entire funding model just need to be thrown out now? And just because, look, I drive an internal combustion engine, so I pay that. Uh, but I know the Joe Hall household next vehicle will probably be an EV, uh, which means I won't be paying that 17 cents per litre, which I think a lot of folks are heading in that direction. Uh, does that entire funding model now just need to be thrown out sooner rather than later? Well, I think so, because not only are people naturally making that shift, but provincial and federal policies are going to make it a reality. Um, I I forget uh, the year uh, in which the the province has set uh, a mandate that you're no longer going to have gas power vehicles sold by, but there are provincial and federal policies that are going to come into play that are going to lead to an uh, an even more exponential increase in the number of EVs. And so uh, 
trying to fund a transit agency by having people uh, pay uh, tax, you know, gas tax, and then also property tax. Property tax is the other uh, significant uh, way in which TransLink is funded in our province. It's just outdated. It's got us to where we are. Um, and, and I would make this observation. There are billions of dollars in taxes in the form of income tax and sales tax and other uh, taxes and fees that leave Metro Vancouver every single day and go to Victoria and to Ottawa. We are one of the few countries where the federal government is not providing uh, uh, ongoing support for the operating costs of the transit agency. So our view as mayors is we got to get our fair share reinvested into this region where so much of this money is, is leaving Metro Vancouver, it's going to other levels of government. This is a basic need of our region. This is like utilities. This is like mm-hmm. uh, you know, water, sewer, all the rest of it. Uh, it's a building block of, of our region. And we think we need to see investment from those other levels of government uh, to provide people with the options that they deserve. Uh, so the, the conversation was that you need do need help uh, in the in the near term, uh, as you said, because of ridership being down, inflationary costs, and of course, uh, losing some tax dollars due to EVs, and that that is going to speed up, as you say. And I think it was five hundred million dollars in emergency relief needed till twenty twenty five. How confident are you that the provincial government will be providing those dollars to you? Well, I know there have been positive conversations between the province and TransLink. Um, they've been working on a, on a staff-to-staff level. I've certainly had good conversations with uh, Minister Fleming, the Minister of Transportation. Um, no announcement yet, uh, but I think they understand how important uh, the transit agency is to uh, residents in, in Metro Vancouver, and I, I don't think they want to see us have to go down the road of uh, reductions in services particularly because the province, as you know, is really beating the drum on we need to build more housing. They're, you know, that is something mm-hmm. that they are really pushing. And they're saying that uh, not only do we need to build more housing, but municipalities, we're going to bring in legislation that requires this. And if you don't, there could be consequences. Uh, we know that on a federal level, Immigration is being set to a, a record high in terms of a target. We're going to see, uh, you know, by some estimates, um, you know, uh, 50,000 people move to Metro Vancouver a year. I mean, to put that in, into context, that's like this, the size of the city of North Vancouver. And you have to have a transportation system that can accommodate that. So I think they get that. If you're going to see this increasing population, if you're going to be pushing for cities to take on more and more housing, this is a basic core requirement, not a nice to have, but a must have, unless you want everyone to have to drive. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and the sprawl and the congestion that comes with that. And, you know, uh, as someone who uh, relies upon my vehicle to to get around, being in a place like Port Coquitlam and getting the kids to school and to hockey and all the rest of it, I mean, it's going to be incredibly frustrating for drivers if you see that increased congestion because the investments haven't been made in the public transit agency. We've run out of time, Brad. Before I go, we, we spent a lot of time on this last week. We saw a significant amount of property tax uh, increase announcements last week. Vancouver, I think it was 9.7. Uh, Surrey was just uh, stratospheric. <laughs> a lot of that is the policing situation, but 17.5. But I think still 9% of it is still, or 8% of it is still uh, just basic city services. Uh, has your city announced a number yet? Uh, we haven't. We're going to be making an announcement tomorrow, and I can tell you we have been working incredibly hard, literally going line by line through our budget, our council, uh, taking the extra time uh, to really do this right. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing that number tomorrow, and I think... uh, the people of Port Coquitlam will be pretty pleased. Uh, if you are, uh, I'm going to ask you right now on the air, can you come on tomorrow? We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what cities are going through right now in regards to property taxes. So we'd love to have you back on tomorrow if we can do that. I'd, I'd love to join you. All right. That, uh, that is locked down. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jazz. Appreciate you having me.
Welcome back to the show. Well, earlier today, the federal government announced it was banning uh, Chinese-owned social media app TikTok from all government mobile devices. Uh, the government said that it, uh, the app itself presented an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. So as of tomorrow, all government employees with TikTok with the TikTok app on their phone uh, will have to remove it moving forward. They are also, uh, and Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau has said that uh, every Canadian should make that decision on their own when it comes to their personal phone uh, as well. Now, part of that, of course, is a conversation, broader conversation about China and its, its espionage op- uh, op- apparatus that they have set up in that country. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, today also was pushing back against uh, re- news reports from Friday that alleged security officials urged the Liberal Party to rescind the nomination of one of its uh, MPs. Uh, that MP is Han Dong, uh, who was allegedly, uh, they say, uh, according to reports, allegedly helped by the Chinese consulate while running for the Toronto area riding of Don Valley North. And that was in the 2019 election. That was reported by Global News on Friday. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, was presented with that question earlier today in regards to how his government responded to that 2019 election interference advice that they got from CSIS. Take a listen to what he had to say. In early 2019, we stood up both an intelligence task force and a high-level panel consisting of top public servants uh, to be able to ensure that the integrity of our elections uh, is not compromised by foreign interference. They determined that both in the 2019 and the 2021 elections, our election integrity held. That doesn't mean that we are not faced on an ongoing basis by attempts at interference in our democracies. We will always look at the recommendations made and we will always continue to step up on keeping uh, our citizens and our democracies safe. It's extremely important and uh, we will continue to do that. That was Prime Minister Trudeau speaking earlier today. Joining me now is Kenny Chu. He is a former member of Parliament, a Conservative member of Parliament for the riding of Stevenson Richmond East. Uh, in the, uh, he lost in the 2021 election, and there has been widespread reporting uh, from the Canadian intelligence sources that they believe he had lost a seat because of a targeted campaign uh, by the Chinese consulate here uh, in the Lower Mainland. Not just his seat, but uh, uh, the other seat in Richmond uh, as well. Uh, Kenny, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me again. Uh, it's an important conversation here. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, the, the response there from the Prime Minister, he, he says basically that, look, uh, we have put in processes in place that, uh, that uh, provides and guarantees the integrity of our elections, even though China may try to interfere. What do you say to that? Well, if process and committees can actually secure a country's um, safety and security from foreign interference, then we don't need government. Uh, We would not need a parliament. Um, Unfortunately, as we have seen in the past few years, uh, even when when parliament had actually passed motion repeatedly asking for the government, the um, Trudeau-led liberal government, to... Uh, pay attention to, for example, uh, the Winnipeg um, microbiology labs leak and under what circumstances the um, scientists have been dismissed and the security clear- clearance are rescinded. Uh, these are all fallen into death year. Um, and now Justin Trudeau just used and, and, you know, the, the, um, the, the race card again. He's bringing up the race and as if questioning uh, these foreign interference is somehow related to anti-Asian racism. I think a lot of uh, your listener and myself included Canadians in general, we're, we're just getting so frustrated because if you trivialize anti-Asian racism uh, and just hide behind that and use that as an excuse and cover uh, for dereliction of guilt, build, uh, duty like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's going to water down the true meaning of uh, racism. Uh, let's go back to your uh, situation specifically. We got cut yeah. off there. Uh, the issue of um, the broader inquiry, a public inquiry into Chinese government interference in our 2019 and 21 elect- 2021 elections, you're in support of a public inquiry. Absolutely, Jess. By the way, I, I I was actually listening. I enjoy so thoroughly your analysis. But that's that's what exactly ordinary ordinary Canadians are demanding. Um, in fact, this issue should really be a bipartisan, nonpartisan issue, as we have observed 
uh, happened in uh, in Australia. It was supported by both uh, a party that has a chance to govern, and and in unfortunately in Ottawa today, it was just way too uh, political politicized and partisan for it to be conducted properly, for any investigation to be conducted properly. And that's why I support uh, Caesar's uh, former uh, director, uh, Mr. Richard Fadden, in his, in his comment that we need an independent inquiry into the whole business here to, to find out once and for all how deep and how wide this hole is. Uh, in regards to the um, Chinese community, and it's hard, I think, for you to, and I don't mean to put you in an awkward position, but your thoughts on what you're hearing broadly about this entire conversation and debate and how it's playing out in the broader Chinese community. And it's hard to articulate because there isn't one Chinese community, but your thoughts broadly in, in, in regards to how this information is being received. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of people who are very close to um, the Chinese communists, either in business or in other um, untold relationships, they they are trying to portray this just like Justin Trudeau said. It's a race-based accusation. Uh, it, it falls exactly into what the, the Chinese Communist Party has been activating around the world, among the diaspora Chinese community. Um, they, they weaponize nationalism and, and been telling people that uh, if you criticize the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, it's equated to criticizing China, and therefore uh, it's also equated to criticizing Chinese as a race. And that's why you will find it soon when you start questioning a policy by the Communist Party of China in Canada, uh, you will be labeled racist before you know it. Now, the, the problem is, the problem of that description is, uh, just if you recall, about uh, 12 years ago, there was a conservative MP who's been having uh, an appropriate, inappropriate relationship with a Chinese journalist in Ottawa. His name is Bob, De- uh, Bob Deckard. And he was, he was basically exposed. And, and Prime Minister back then was, had a good talk with him. He's no longer a member of parliament. So national security really should not be a partisan and it is not race-based. In fact, exactly like you said. The, the victim, it's exactly the uh, Chinese diaspora community that has been now exposed to manipulation and losing their voice potentially in Mississauga, in Ontario, in Greater Vancouver. And the prime minister, whose job is supposed to be protecting Canada and Canadians, uh, yet he's been hiding in, and using this race card. Uh, and that's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kenny, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to chatting with you uh, in the future because this story is not going to be going away uh, anytime soon. Thanks for your time. Yeah, anytime. Thank you, Jess. Bye-bye. Tomorrow, the government will be introducing the provincial budget for 2023. Now, budgets generally speak to a government's uh, priorities. Um, and, of course, there'll be endless debate on the, the dollars the government will be spending, how much went to health care, education, transportation. Uh, there's never enough dollars to placate all interests. And there'll be many other programs that uh, are invaluable programs that should be uh, funded as well. So it's a constant debate. And there'll be extensive coverage of the budget tomorrow as well, including the finance minister, Joy us on this show. Our next guest will also be at the budget lockup and he just won't be looking at the budget numbers but he'll be looking at budget 2023 for what he calls generational fairness. Joining me now is Dr. Paul Kershaw. He is the founder of Generation Squeeze. He's also the director of the Master of Public Health program at UBC School of Population and Public Health. Uh, Dr. Kershaw, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are you looking for in tomorrow's uh, provincial budget? Well, at Generation Squeeze, we want BC to work for all generations. So we go looking at a budget asking, is it planning for all ages? Is it following what I call the generational golden rule, treating other generations as you would want your generation to be treated? And effectively, is it aiming to invest in well-being from the early years onwards? That's what we're looking for. And in anticipation of that, we've actually gone and done a bit of a retrospective, like what's been the pattern since 2017 when the NDP came to patter, came to power. And it's interesting to to sort of see the data and then see the language, and they're not always aligned. Uh, when you say not always aligned, what are you broadly seeing? Well, I think that 
we definitely we have a new premier. So you know the record that I'm talking about is not the responsibility of the new premier. It's only been there 100 days, and like freighter, it's hard to turn around in a short period of time. So there's lots of good announcements: of housing affordability, $10 a day childcare, addressing poverty, including in the downtown east side. But when we actually crunch the numbers from 2017 onward, we can see that under the NDP government, we have increased spending per retiree, so somebody over 65, 80% faster than we have for those under the age of 45. Uh, each retiree on average has gained an extra $4,600 in spending from the NDP government compared to $2,600 per person under 45. And that's a really interesting stat. It's actually unfortunately not a stat that parliamentarians get a lot. Um, the, our, our budgets don't break the numbers down this way, and so that's why, you know, at my lab, we do that each year. But I'm hopeful that actually in future years with Premier E.B., he'll, he'll be uh, tasking the finance ministry to actually crunch the numbers a little bit differently so we can ask the question, are we investing urgently for young and old alike? Uh, when you say uh, per retiree, I think it was $4,600, what are the sort of the one or two big things that add to that number in your mind? Uh, yeah, it's disproportionately uh, medical care that's driving that. You know, we need to recall that in British Columbia, about uh, 20% of our population is over the age of 65, but that demographic consumes 47% of our medical care spending. Uh, that's not unsurprising. Our care needs increase as we age, and, we, and they become more complex. I think what's more complicated is that in British Columbia, citizens and our governments rarely talk about whether today's aging population paid enough taxes earlier in their working lives to cover the use of medical care they want to use now. And the spoiler alert is on that front, the answer is no, that our system wasn't set up for today's aging population, the baby boomers, to like prepay back in the day for what they want to use. They paid for the retirees that were around when they were young workers. But back then, there were uh, about um, seven workers for every retiree. Now there are fewer than four. So another way of looking at it is when baby boomers were you know young and starting out as workers, they were they were paying about five percent of their taxes towards the medical care for retirees. If you flash forward to today, you have young people paying ten percent of their taxes towards the medical care for retirees. Hmm. You know, is that bad? Is that good? You know, it's an open question, but we don't talk about it in those kinds of details and bringing that age lens into the conversation enough. I would argue. Uh, and and I get where you're coming from. I think our listeners are saying, okay, well, I, I get the point. But the system is set up that we take care of the elderly because they paid into the system and took care of the elderly before them. That's how the system works. What is the solution to that? Is it just um, uh, greater program spending for a younger generation, or is it about actually increasing the amount of workers we have, which would be even more immigration? I think we're about to hit 500,000 in 2025. Uh, we used to debate 225,000 in the 1990s, so a significant amount of immigration is already coming. So how do we fix this in your mind? Is it just greater reliance on more immigrants, or is this going to be about specific programs? Well, I suspect it's going to be both and, not either or. And I think it, it really, though, requires our having this conversation. So, you know, we, we are talking more and more about immigration. We're bringing in those immigrants largely because we need to address the demographic reality. We used to have lots of workers per retiree. Today, we don't. Um, and, pardon me, we used to have lots, yeah, lots of workers per retiree. Today, we have fewer. And so we're bringing in immigration to address that. Interestingly and unsurprisingly, immigrants then want to settle in our cities, and that's one of many factors that's contributing to increased demand for housing and then exacerbating housing uh, unaffordability problems for a younger demographic, although interestingly, contributing to the kind of housing price inflation that does make an older demographic who are homeowners typically more affluent. And so I do think that there are moments when the affluence that's been gained from our, our housing wealth is one place where we can ask that older population, hey, we didn't give you the chance to prepay for the medical care you want to use. Could we think about in innovative ways for those with housing wealth means to draw on that now to pay for the medical care for their demographic? So we leave ample funds available to invest in $10 a day child care, reduce poverty for a younger demographic, and... Um, and think about a broader range of uh, deeply affordable housing options that we can make available to younger folks who are really struggling. Are, are we there, though, for that, there yet for that conversation? What I mean by that is I've brought up, uh, you know, those types of issues, different programs, different segments that we've done. Um, even, you know, at one point I think we brought up the issue of the homeowner's grant, which I said is bad policy, but very popular policy that's been around for uh, generations. 
And the calls we got were predominantly, uh, I would say, boomers who just thought I was a stupid for even ever recommending that. Uh, it's very difficult to politically do what you're saying, though, is it not? Because boomers vote. Uh, boomers have, uh, obviously, the right to ask for programs that they want. Uh, that the younger generation perhaps isn't demanding a lot of the things that you're talking about as of yet, or not putting enough political pressure on the political class to move forward on some of those. Well, we know that politics responds to those who organize and show up, and so it behooves a group like Generation Squeeze to you know, work with young and old alike to create political cover for our politicians to courageously respond to the data. Mm-hmm. But what we don't yet have is actually our bureaucracy isn't at this moment going to be feeding into the budgeting process that will happen tomorrow and saying, hey, look at this age gap in the spending. Look at how we're investing more in treating illness after people fall sick rather than investing in their well-being to slow the flow of sickness into the hospitals in the first place. Look at the deaths that we're growing because we're not balancing this, we're not raising enough revenue to cover the medical care that we're wanting to offer to today's aging population. And that then then crowds out future investment for younger demographics and later on generations. We need our budget to provide that information and then reasonable people will disagree about, you know, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, the current trajectories. But if we don't actually have the data coming from our budgets, then it's really hard to create the public dialogue to help bring your listeners on a path where we can say, hey, older folks, we know you want to leave a proud legacy for your kids and grandchildren. There are some reasons that the research is telling us we should be worried about that. And uh, let's think about what we can do to adapt now so that you leave that proud legacy and your kids and grandkids get off to the best start possible. I mean, it's, it, one could argue it's, it's not as black and white, that government is starting to recognize some of those issues. I would think, I would argue uh, that younger generation has made housing front and center now from the municipal level, provincial and federal in regards to dealing with this challenge. You brought up the issue of, um, of daycare uh, and the fact that $10 a daycare does pay for itself and we need to, for parents to be able to work uh, and that, those spaces to be there and to be affordable. So, uh, I mean, it, would you argue that perhaps government is getting to the point where it is listening now more and more than perhaps uh, 10 years ago? I think that we are making some headway, absolutely. And even despite the headway that the NDP government has made with regards to housing affordability and their 30-point plan, the $10-a-day child care investment addressing poverty on the downtown east side, even still, we have this pattern of them growing spending on an older demographic much more urgently. And that is the under-discussed piece about the housing crisis that we've been talking, pardon me, the medical care crisis that we've been talking a lot about these days. Part of the problem is that we... Um, we not only have a challenge with family, physicians, et cetera, that we talked a lot about, but we do have the aging in population, and we didn't, we didn't adapt our system decades ago to recognize what that pressure would be putting on our budgets. And so now with the, the, the challenges have come home to roost, so to speak, and they are resulting in larger deficits a lot of the time for their kids and grandchildren, crowding out other kinds of investments that could happen more urgently. I think most of the population still doesn't have really doesn't have the chance to know this information. And so I think it does behoove this kind of radio conversation, work from my lab at UBC and groups like Gen Squeeze, but also our bureaucracy. We need our bureaucrats to present budgets that then give these talking points into the briefing notes that media will talk about on the day of the budget. And I think that can help create the dialogue. Well, I can say uh, the Premier, technically, correct me if I'm wrong, is a Gen Xer. So we've, we I think it's our first Gen X uh, uh, Premier. Uh, maybe that's part of the change that <laughs> you're talking about. But it'll be very interesting in regards to what he has to say and what uh, is actually provided in tomorrow's budget. So I look forward to chatting with you soon about uh, the specifics of, of what uh, the government announces. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Happy to join after I come out of the lockout tomorrow. Well, earlier today, the federal government announced that it was banning uh, Chinese-owned social media app TikTok from all government mobile devices devices beginning tomorrow uh, because the app, they say, presents an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. Of course, uh, Canada's announcement today follows that of the United States and, and the UK as well. 25 U.S. states have also banned uh, TikTok uh, when it comes to uh, state government employees uh, as well. Now, this is all occurring in the context of Chinese, the broader conversation about Chinese uh, espionage and uh, potentially the country meddling in our 2019 and 2021 elections. Um, there has been significant conversation after a global news story on Friday that suggests Liberal MP Han Dong was allegedly helped by the Chinese consulate while running in the Toronto area riding of Don Valley North during the 20. 20- 
2019 election. There has been, uh, of course, call not only because of this information, but also uh, interference alleged from the 2021 election where uh, two uh, Richmond area members of parliament lost their seats. One of them, of course, was Kenny Chu, who's on this show at 4.30. Today, uh, uh, reporters today did did ask Prime Minister Trudeau on the need for a public inquiry. Uh, Here's his response. This week, at a parliamentary committee, in public hearings, our National Security and Intelligence Advisor, along with uh, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, will be testifying, among other top officials, publicly to a committee of the House of Commons on what is going on and what happened and what further methods are going to be taken. It is extremely important, as you say, the Canadians see that this is open, transparent, nonpartisan, independent, because we're all concerned and worried about our elections' integrity. Transparency is extraordinarily important uh, for our democracies and for active defense of our democracies. Well, certainly judging by that response, uh, the Prime Minister uh, doesn't seem to be in support of a public inquiry. A parliamentary committee is much much more different than a public inquiry where you can compel many other people to come and speak uh, as well. Now, in the specific allegations around Liberal MP Han Dong uh, and the fact that uh, certainly information by security officials – was leaked to news organizations and their concerns and the information they provided the Liberals in 2019. The Prime Minister was also asked about that specific question regarding one of his MPs. Take a listen. Let me be very clear to a really important point that I think uh, some folks are choosing to overlook. In a free democracy, it is not up to unelected security officials to dictate to political parties who can or cannot run. That's a really important principle. We, of course, draw on the expertise every step of the way. But the suggestions we've seen in the media that CSIS would somehow say, no, this person can't run or that person can't run, is not just false. It's actually damaging to people's uh, confidence in our democratic and political institutions. Well, lots to discuss just based on those two statements from the Prime Minister. Joining us now is Miro Trinetic. He's a former Beijing correspondent for the Globe and Mail. He's a CEO of Brand Centric and co-founder of City Age. Miro, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Good to be here. Yeah, I mean, there's lots to, to touch on here. Let's touch on the first issue of a public inquiry. And sometimes those kind of comments get thrown out quite easily. Anytime there's a conflict, someone says, we need a public inquiry. But in the, this particular case, in regards to a potential uh, interference by China in our 2019 and 2021 election, your thoughts on whether or not those that are asking for a public inquiry, may, are they in the right or in the wrong here in your mind? Well, I, I personally think they are, uh, having covered politics for many decades, uh, they're absolutely in the right. And the, the, the people who are asking for it are really, uh, you know, have a lot of credibility. Um, the, the Prime Minister's former principal secretary, <clears throat> Jerry Butts, has said that there's a need for one. Um, of course, the, the, the former head of CSIS has said that there's a need for one. Others have as well, including the leader of the NDP. Um, so I, I think I think we're going down that road. The important thing is to understand what kind of inquir- inquiry it is. There's going to be certain parts of an inquiry into national security that are going to be private, but they, they w- it will be independently adjudicated, and that's important. But some of it will be public. And the other thing that I think is really important, and this doesn't has nothing to do with national security, is what happened in the political the political side of this for all parties. To what degree did candidates? elected or non-elected, get help from any kind of foreign government, and that could be China or any other government. And this is a really important question to begin to ask. Uh, this could be financial help. It can be the social media help. That's the world we live in today. And I think that's what Mr. Butts was suggesting, that uh, given what's happening with technology, um, we really have to really start looking at what's, what's happening in our political races yeah. in, a, in a democracy. Uh, you raise a very good point because, you know, the second comment from the Prime Minister uh, regarding uh, Handong or the allegations against uh, Handong, uh, I find interesting. He says that security officials shouldn't be dictating to political parties. Well, they're not dictating. They're certainly providing you information. And ultimately, it's up to political parties and elected officials to respond to it. And people are also going to be asking, won't argue, why didn't you listen to senior security individuals? These aren't 
the political class. I mean, for him to come back and say that, well, they can't dictate to us. Well, technically you're correct, but you have some obligation to take the advice of senior security officials. Yeah, the role, the role and the, um, the duty of senior uh, CSIS officials is to supply accurate intelligence to the prime minister and, and, the, and the government. And that's what they're doing. The government can choose to listen or not listen. But I would just add to that, it's very normal in, dur- during a political race for a candidate to be vetted and for even, um, uh, even people in the political party, the back room, if you will, they, ha- they give advice to the prime minister, and that is listened to occasionally as well, uh, more often than not, I would say. So I, I think, you know, the, um, the question there is why wasn't the advice listened to? Did it, was, did it not have veracity or was it ignored for other reasons? And, you know, this, and this, this applies also to, to any leader of a political party in Canada. It's not, this is not a political issue in my mind. This is a structural issue for our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it could actually go further than that. I think you've alluded to this already, but forget our political class for a moment. Does Elections Canada, Elections BC, have the expertise to deal with some of these issues around fundraising? Sometimes a government doesn't need to do anything except raise money for a particular candidate, potentially, if you are going to meddle. And it's a question of just handing people who write these checks to or donate to these people cash that is returned to them for that donation. I mean, there has to be some, one would argue, even greater resources um, needed for elections BC or elections Canada as well to, to make sure that uh, our elections are free and clear or at least as much as possible on these things. I think it's not just the, the, the elected officials, it's actually our agencies that how, how do they you know, keep up with this rather sophisticated meddling? Well, they're, they're underfunded and they can't. I mean, I think that's obvious and we've seen that even domestically, um, you know, forget about possible foreign influence, even even within our own elections from municipal to federal, provincial and federal levels, there are constant games and shenanigans being played to try and get money to candidates. It doesn't take a lot of money to really change a race when you're, you know, you might be, you know, lose by 100 votes. Uh, it, you know, it's a couple of buses. And these things that ha- always happen in politics. And it's, I think the distasteful part of politics, but that's your reality. But a public in- inquiry, I think, would shed a lot of lights, a light in, into these issues mm-hmm. in uh, in a modern, a more modern context. Take it out of the back room mm-hmm. and put it on the public agenda. Put it on the uh, uh, the, the fourth estate's agenda, journalism, and you know, sh- get, get some information on this. I mean, there's some very specific questions. If I were reporting again, and I were in Parliament Hill, I didn't report on Parliament Hill, by the way, but I've been there a lot. The um, I would be asking, I would like to know who got what. Like, who who's on that list that from CSIS, of all parties, it's not just liberals, that, that people believe got uh, foreign, foreign um, advantage, uh, resources from any kind of foreign entity. Mm-hmm. In this case, China's obviously seems to be playing the larger role, but there are other countries that do this. We have to start looking about at where our candidates in a democracy are getting some of the resources, and is the system being manipulated? Mm-hmm. I would add one other thing, Jazz. Um, this is not, not about chi- being Chinese. It's about China and the government of China. It's a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any racial component to this whatsoever. No, Anybody who has that is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very important thing to remember. Uh, exactly. And it, the Chinese government wants you to believe that they are the only spokespeople or representatives of Chinese people. And that an attack on the Chinese government is or an attack on Chinese people, Chinese culture, and the Chinese diaspora. And that is absolutely wrong. It is a question and challenging uh, what meddling there was from the Communist part of, Party of, of China here in yeah. Canada. I think that's a really important uh, issue. Well, uh, and we have to also remember, you know, that in China, one of the major issues geopolitically is the future of Taiwan, which is um, it considers itself an independent country, and most of the world does, but a lot, of, but China does not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the Taiwanese are very active in the in the in the Chinese community too, trying to put make their case. The where you where the line is crossed is when you illegally give assistance to to candidates 
with, 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 without declaring what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and there are strict laws around that. If they've been violated, Canadians need to know. Yeah. I also think, and I, I go back to my my time in politics and in, in, in a riding like Richmond, which was, was a very large Chinese population. Last year, to my understanding, CESAs did advise BC members of parliament on, on sort of broad threats. But I understand the advice they gave to the members of parliament was very broad. Like, I think a lot of them were frustrated because it didn't say stay away from this individual or what I would argue is say these eight groups you should stay away from. You should not attend their events. You don't have to make it public, but you at least provide that advice. Instead, you get this broad, very generic advice that doesn't help our elected officials. My time, having lived and worked in China like you and certainly represented a riding with a significantly large Chinese population is our elected officials to a certain degree are – you know, at times unsophisticated in regards to the dealings with the Chinese government and the Chinese diaspora in regards to some of these things. And they could be potentially open to manipulation, not because they're trying to do <laughs> undermine Canada, but I don't think they may understand what they're up against. Uh, I think I think that's very true. And I think uh, I think you're a different case because you're a, um, a journalist who lived in China. So you're, I think, fairly sophisticated about that. I would argue that most elected representatives who are running for office or candidates running for office don't have that experience. So they do need guidance. And this gets back to why you need a public inquiry. I think our candidates and all parties need to understand the forces out there that are trying to distort the electoral electoral process and democracy. And it is out there. And, you know, in the United States, it hasn't been the Chinese uh, per se. It's been more Russian. Um, I mean, do, I don't know if that's happening in Canada. I don't think we know. And I think we really have to start looking at this very carefully. And uh, and it's also not just foreign governments. We have to look at foreign foreign um, organizations, foreign corporations. Um, we have to understand who is funding our democracy. And it should be done internally. It should be done by Canadians. And it should be transparent. Miro, thank you for your time today, my friend. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.